All right, everyone, if you want to come on in and grab a seat, I'm going to go ahead and start with our time of teaching. Uh, but before I do, I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Love you guys. Love that you love each other. All right. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your leadership in our life. Thank you for your direction. Thank you for your revelation. And I ask this morning, Lord, as you continue to both individually and corporately continue to move us forward as your people, um, I pray you would meet with us, that you'd speak to us in really specific and concrete ways. Um, I don't know what everyone in this room needs. If we're honest, we often don't even know what we need for ourselves. But Father, you know what we need. And so Lord, I pray um, that you would speak through me and in spite of me this morning. I pray that you would speak through the different men and women in this church their gifts today, as they talk, as they pray for one another, as they take communion together, as they have conversation after, that you would use the body of Christ to be the body of Christ to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, man, we, uh, we just finished an almost six-month series in the Sermon on the Mount, which feels, you don't have to applaud, but it feels significant. Um, so uh, we're in the middle, or we're going to be in between series for a few weeks and uh, it's kind of like a mini-series, uh, really around, uh, like, vision or direction. And in the past, we used to do these things called Vision Sundays. Uh, and they had a very, like, Sunday, 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 gravedigger vibe to them. Like, a lot of hype, a lot of excitement. Like, where's God taking us? And over the years, what we realized, a couple years back, I, we just felt, as an elder team, we kind of had this revelation um, that vision isn't something that we just conjure up, like a CEO or a head coach of a team or, uh, you know, whatever, the leader of a political party, um, vision in the scriptures, vision with God's people, God uses a ton of leaders in scripture, um, but the leaders receive vision. They don't achieve vision. They don't go, I'm going to come up with a vision I want to do. Um, they pray, they fast, they listen and see what God brings. And then from there, they go, okay, Lord, if that's where you're going, we have to think through how to get there practically and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, so we're doing a, a mini-series on our direction as a church. And um, even in your own personal life, it can be a really helpful practice at the beginning of the year to ask God for what to focus on. Um, I've been reading a book. I've been reading two books kind of on this. One's called The Intentional Year that came out at the end of last year. They know what they were doing branding-wise. Um, but it really uh, highlights this idea of like just sitting before God towards the like late November, early December. Uh, some of you guys really plan ahead. Maybe like your summer break, you get ready for the next year. But you kind of go before the Lord and you just go, okay, hey, what, what are you calling me to this year, Father? And you ask for specific words. And they recommend, you, like, before you even get into goals, asking the Father for areas of focus. So, like, I know I'm called to love people, if I'm a disciple of Jesus. What people are you calling me to pay attention to this year in love and in specific ways? I know you call me to become like Jesus if I'm a follower of Jesus. But what aspect of Jesus' character do you want me to focus in on this next year? Uh, does that make sense? And so it's no different in leading a church, leading a community. Uh, and so today is technically a Direction Sunday where we share where we believe we're being led to go as a church. But as church leaders, we, we, we have to do a similar thing. So we, we ask God questions like, hey, what theological or doctrinal truths do people need to hear based on what's going on in people's lives in our church, based on what big narratives are happening culturally? Wh what do, where do we need the scriptures to speak to a situation or a worldview issue? Um, what issues, and that, that even leads like, what books of the Bible should we study based on that? Um, what issues do we need to talk about? What, what pain are people carrying? Like, what, what, what are some wounds that are in our community? Are there any themes? Uh, what types of sin are people wrestling with? Is there, again, we all sin, but, but is there specific sin that's kind of 
catching on or growing. Like the New Testament talks about how sin's almost contagious, and there's things that we can just get used to and not realize, man, this isn't what God wants for me. Or uh, what aspects of Jesus' kingdom do we want to see people experience this year? And so um, what's God calling us to highlight? And so in our teaching, kind of these next couple weeks, we want to look at the, 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 the ideas that popped for us. And the two words are the Holy Spirit and the household. The Holy Spirit and the household. Now the Holy Spirit, this is the idea of, of becoming a people who engage with the Spirit and respond to the Spirit. So, so people who worship people who pray, people who seek to listen to the Holy Spirit, and then responds to the Spirit, okay? So it's not just the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or or theology around the Holy Spirit. We need to have that. We'll get into that, but that serves a purpose. And and again, I want to know a lot of things about my wife, but but I want to know them so I can love her and be in relationship with her well. I don't want to be someone that can win a Jackie trivia game on Tuesday night at Sycamore Den. I want to know her so that I can love her well and be connected to her and know what she wants and, and when she wants and all that, ki- that type of thing. Um, so, so that's Holy Spirit, worshiping, praying, listening to, and responding to the Spirit of God. And then the second one is the household. Now, household might sound uh, confusing or old-fashioned or whatever, but, but the Greek word for household in the New Testament is oikos. And that's your sphere of influence. It's your relational world, your, your own personal relational system that you live in, Okay. And that could be, uh, it, it, again, it's not less than a nuclear family. If you, if you, if you have a family that you live with um, that you're related to, it, it's, it's not that it's not that. It's just more than that. But it's definitely part of it we're going to cover this year is that, looking at things like marriage and parenting. But, but, but household for us, is, it's this idea of taking responsibility for our closest relationships and allowing the kingdom of God to break into those relationships through us. Again, whether they're close friendships or marriages or children you're parenting, or children you're influencing as an auntie or uncle. And so that's, this year, that's what's popping for us. Responding to the Holy Spirit and being relationally healthy. And letting the scriptures dictate what relational health is, not just the culture at large right now. Um, and so today we're going to talk about the first one, which is worship and responding to the Holy Spirit. Um, and to do that, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, so next week, uh, Grant's going to be preaching uh, the, the message God's given him, and then in two weeks' time, we're going to look at the idea of relational health, the household, and some initiatives we have this upcoming year, uh, looking at ideas like being a good friend, having a healthy marriage, being a godly, loving, consistent parent uh, or friend. And so today, though, again, looking at worship, uh, we'll be in First Samuel. Now, First Samuel, uh, book of the Old Testament, we've just spent a ton of time in the New Testament. Um, we've ever, we, we actually have never taught through a whole narrative book of the Old Testament. Uh, so we've done shorter prophetic books. We've done um, glimpses and looks at things, thematic studies in the Torah. Um, but, but 1 Samuel is, is, a, is a narrative. And so it's t- telling a story. It's an account of what happened in Israel's history that's designed to teach us something about the character of God. Now, important thing you need to know about the Old Testament, we're going to get into this in a second. Um, it's true in the New Testament too, but, but, but the Old Testament isn't saying be like these people. Okay? There are a lot of characters in the Old Testament. If you be like them, you're going to be in jail. Okay? They do some wild stuff, some weird stuff, some dysfunctional stuff. I mean, dysfunctional family. Like, they're putting the dis and dysfunctional, not the fun. Some gross, hard, painful family dynamics. Um, but again, what, it's sh- what the Old Testament is showing you is God's faithfulness to really broken people, which should encourage you because you're a pretty broken person, too. So am I. I'm not talking down to you. And so there's something we can learn about um, who God is and what his purposes are for us. So 1 Samuel chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, it says, There was a man 
Um, uh, a man from, I, I've practiced this multiple times and it still gets me. Um, there's a man from a place in the hill country of Ephraim. <laughs> His name was Elkanah, son of Jerom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The first was named Hannah and the second was Penaniah. Uh, Penaniah had children, but Hannah was childless. Now again, um, what might pop off the page to you is like, dude, this guy's got two wives, right? Like, I don't know if, if <laughs> that hit you. Now, again, um, one of the things that happens when you study the scriptures or, or when people talk about the scriptures, uh, they don't have much experience with them or don't understand what the purpose of the scriptures are. They do view them as like moral lessons, uh, everything. And uh, which isn't how you read literature, but for some reason, people can tend to view the Bible that way. And uh, what can happen is, is you go, look, the Bible's anti-woman. Look at this polygamy. Boom first two verses. But it's important to know, again, that the scriptures are full, are full of stories with sinful, messed up people, just at specific times and spaces and places. It's a true story, which means it's history, but history isn't always pretty. Um, now, again, when you read history and historians and they describe something that happened, very rarely do you think to yourself, like if you read a book, for example, I read a book on the, I read a book on the Holocaust one time, I didn't think to myself, man, this author's endorsing what went down at the Holocaust, okay? Um, I've watched documentaries about all kinds of terrible things that have happened in this world, things like genocide and war, um, all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, gender discrimination. And, and, and when I watch those documentaries or I watch a movie about war, I don't think the director of this is going, man, war is awesome, or we should do this thing. Uh, again, it's, 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 it's describing something that happened. It's not prescribing something to do. And that's the case here. Um, again, just because the Bible says that sinful people did sinful things doesn't mean God or the biblical authors endorsing their actions. An example of this is, again, polygamy in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament scholar David Lamb writes this. He says, just because the Bible honestly records the stories of messed up people, it doesn't mean that God endorses everything they did. For example, in Genesis, God created male and female in his image as his ideal for marriage. One man, one woman for a lifetime. Polygamy, polyamory, adultery, and open relationships were all off the table. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, Lucy, and Jane. But it didn't take long for humanity to radically change the script. Only a few pages later, a few, few pages later in the scriptures, a man named uh, Lamech married two women. Later, Abraham, Jacob, David, and Solomon all have multiple wives. This was never God's command or original design for marriage. And if you look closely at the polygamy stories in the Old Testament, they always end in heartbreak. Always. So polygamy is never commanded or commended in the Bible like it is um, actually in other religions. Uh, in Islam, it's actually, it's, it's okay. It's, 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 it's in, uh, even encouraged. Um, we're here, it seems to always go bad in the biblical narrative. So, so that's that. Let's keep reading. That's Hannah's life, though, okay? So, so this guy, he has two wives, the first name Hannah, the second Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests, which, by the way, they're terrible priests. We're going to see um, in two weeks' time. Verse 4, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to each of her sons and daughters. And then um, verse 5 says, but he gave a double portion to Hannah 
for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Now, this is kind of a weird romantic gesture. Like, I don't know about you guys. Um, like, girl, I love you. Here's some extra meat, okay? Um, now, maybe some of you guys, you like, you love barbecue. You're like, forget flowers. Like, bring me extra barbecue or g- give me some carne asada. Um, like, for me, it just seems pretty, pretty funny. Um, but anyways, um, that's funny. What isn't funny and what's hard is what Hannah's wrestling with And it's the idea that the Lord has closed her womb. It doesn't say why. Uh, It isn't to punish her. She's clearly, he's clearly up to something she couldn't see. God had a vantage point she didn't have, but that does not change the pain, the grief, the confusion that comes with this. Pick up in verse six. It says, her arrival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. And so Hannah is so hurt, she can't eat. Now, um, struggling with infertility is challenging in any culture. Uh, As a pastor, I've sat with couples who are trying to conceive and they can't. And it can be so painful and confusing. I've had friends who've said, man, I hear stories about people who, like, abuse their kids. And I think, God, why wouldn't you give me a kid? Like, all I want to do is nurture a kid and love a kid and care for a kid. And for some reason, you gave someone else a baby who I don't think should have had a baby. And I go, yeah, I, I, I don't understand. In addition, I've, sound, I've sat with um, quite a few couples as well where miscarriages have happened. And they're devastated. And there's the sense of both we want a child and we feel as though we've lost a child. And so there's real pain for Hannah here. Now, on top of that, what I don't see often when people are struggling with conception and, 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 and when miscarriages happen, you don't tend to have people who make fun of them for that. Like we'd go, that's pretty wild and cruel. And that's what Hannah's walking in. So there's a real pain for Hannah Uh, Not just because of the normal human responses to this struggle, but because of what children meant in the ancient world, okay? Uh, Being a barren woman is almost the worst thing a woman could be in the ancient world for a couple of different reasons. Um, The first was just pretty practical. As a society, um, you know, they're doing farming, they're agrarian, uh, they need people to work fields. And so um, a connection, like how many kids you have is connected to your prosperity in the ancient Near East. Um, It's not where you went to school as much as like how many kids do you have. Um, Long term, there's also a financial component. Um, There is no social security, there is no retirement, there is no safety net, like your kids are supposed to provide for you. Um, That's the arrangement. If you don't have kids, you are really vulnerable. On top of that, ancient Near East, uh, you're living in a part of the world at a time in the world when people just invade each other kind of whenever they feel like it. Um, And uh, and so you need a army. You need people who can go to war. Uh, You need warriors. And then lastly, for the Israelites, um, they're also walking in a, you know, hundreds to thousands of years of a promise on the promised land. There's an inheritance promise. And if you don't have children, your family's cut off from that inheritance. And so you can go on and on. Um, and, so, and so while fertility issues can be hard in any time or place, in this particular time and place, it was connected to their sense of identity, standing in the community, and security for the future. At a time when women were quite disempowered. 
were often treated uh, very poorly, uh, weren't given a life outside of this. And so um, children were like little saviors who could protect you from shame, insecure, uh, uh, sorry, sh shame, insecurity, and poverty. Um, kids would give you a sense of dignity. And so again, in this culture, having children was the main thing a woman did uh, back then. Now again, what's worse though, is not just that she's struggling with this, it's that she's being provoked, all right? Now, I will say this, um, for people that struggle, have struggled with this, it can almost feel like you're being provoked every time. And, and, and again, if you, like for example, if you're single and you wanna be married, it can feel like every time I, ha like every time I think about this desire, one of my friends ends up with someone and I'm not with someone. Even if they're not doing it on purpose, you can almost feel provoked or an over, you, know, you can feel triggered or whatever. You, you can feel like, man, oh, right? Same thing um, with infertility at times. You can feel like, man, there's another person who's pregnant and we're not pregnant. That can be so frustrating and discouraging. This is so much pain there. But on top of that, um, Penaniah is, is, she's provoking her to tears. Like she's emotionally abusing her. Uh, the word for provoke there, uh, it's not even, an, it's not an emotional word. Uh, in Hebrew, it's like, it's a word you would use for like a natural disaster. So it's almost like inside of Hannah is a disaster. Inside of Hannah is a storm. Inside of Hannah is a ton of turmoil and pain. This is what she feels like. It's like she has this struggle. She gets emotionally abused year after year by this woman, and it feels like it never gets better. So she's, she's desperate. That's what I want you to catch. Um, verse 8, uh, Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? And then the greatest line in husband history, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Yeah. Elkanah needs an empathy seminar uh, yesterday, okay? Uh, not only is he not empathetic, he's like, you got me though. She's like, nah, right? Now again, Here's the thing. You might look at this and go again, oh, man, Old Testament, so old-fashioned. I get why we don't teach the Old Testament often. It's so wild back here. Um, now, we may not say your value as a woman is just in your ability to have a baby, right? Um, but we have no problem telling people where their value comes from. And when it's not from God, it's still devastating. Um, I don't know if you guys saw uh, some of the research that came out. It was, it was posted kind of all over the place. In the last two weeks... Um, as they're sifting through a bunch of research from the last 10 years, we're finding that we are in the middle of like arguably the worst mental health crisis since we've been tracking mental health in the United States with teenage girls, okay? Um, and one of the things that they discovered was this thing starts uh, in 2012. 2012 is the turning point. I think I would've been like, oh, it's 2020, a pandemic. It wasn't, it was 2012. And you might wonder like what happened in 2012, right? Um, well, I'll tell you a couple things. Instagram comes out at the very end of 2010. Uh, by the middle of June 2011, Instagram has 5 million users, okay? June 2012, it's jumped to 50 million users. And teenage girls' mental health goes off a cliff. Now, why? Uh, because now people can assign you value or demean you whenever they want, 
Bullies go from one-off moments at school to ongoing moments everyone can see. Bullies go home with you now. They can comment at you at 2 in the morning. The comparison, it goes home with you. Shameful moments, they get reshared and retweeted and reposted. And so this idea that like, oh man, it was so old-fashioned and weird that they assigned value to women for this arbitrary thing, we still have that. Tim Keller points out that um, in the ancient world, you don't have things like eating disorders. You don't have them till, till pretty recently, actually, last in the West. Um, again, because we go, your value as women comes from your beauty or your um, whatever society says an attractive figure is. And so we're still fine to tell a woman where a value comes from and tear her down if she doesn't live up to it. Does that make sense? We see this uh, in culture at large. We see this in the church for different reasons. And the church, it's, it's, it is, can be a little more old-fashioned. Like, hey, you're not married. Hey, you don't have kids. And in culture, it's like, hey, you're not crushing it in the workplace and having kids and eating organic and getting a PhD and, right? And by the way, I'm focusing on women here because the story is about a woman and where she found her value from. It's, but but um, boys and men go through a similar dynamic where where you find your value is a place outside of God and, and the effects are still devastating. Um, some developmental psychologists have pointed out that in the West, men tend to find value in different things over time. It's kind of three seasons of a, a male's life. And when you're young, your significance is how athletic you are. It's pretty common. Uh, in your teen years till you're about 30, it's kind of sexual prowess. Are girls into you? or women into you? And then from 30 until death, it's how much earning potential you have. By the way, those aren't great either. Those will crush you. And so if we don't find our value in something... If we find our value in something besides Jesus, it will destroy us over time. If we look to anything other than Jesus to give us purpose, um, we will be hopeless more often than not. A job can't give you lasting value. Neither can a wife or a husband or children or money. The bottom always falls out on that stuff. It can't carry the weight of your identity and your security. And, and this dynamic shows up when you, when, you put, when you find value in something other than God— uh, either you feel less than for not having it. So let's say you don't have it. You walk around with this sense of inferiority or you get it and it doesn't completely satisfy you 100% of the time. And you spend a lifetime. Like I have a friend who wrote a blog. It was called, I've been to the, I've been to the top, I've been to the mountaintop and it's just okay. Like I achieved my career goal, my relational goal, like on paper what they were and it didn't fulfill me like I thought it would. And now I'm even sadder because the thing that I thought was the missing piece. Before I had a little bit of hope, I just don't have the idol in my hands. It's because I don't have a certain amount of money or a marriage or a spouse or a kid or a kid who listens or, or whatever it is or the, the, the dream job. I've got it now and it hasn't made anything better. And now I don't know what to look to. And then you can spend a lifetime distracting and numbing yourself, which again, which so many of the rich and powerful people in our society do and celebrities do. Addiction runs rampant at the top of society. So much addiction in those circles. And so, and again, I think a lot of it is, I got the stuff and I'm still empty. I did the thing to prove myself. I don't feel like I've proven myself. And again, for many of you, your situation is very different to Hannah. For some of you, it, it can feel similar to Hannah. But either way, you, you constantly are comparing yourself to others, and you're constantly living in, under the weight of expectations. And you're really going, man, where do I find my value? 
where do I find my worth? And in this culture, this was the epitome of finding value. And she didn't have it. So whatever that is for you, think about that. What is this thing that you think you need to be okay, to be valuable? And so um, Hannah's story is instructive for us, though, because she does something with this pain. She doesn't just sit in it. Frankly, I think it'd be pretty, like, I think it'd be pretty legit if she just kind of left, did her own thing, uh, decided, man, I'm just going to kind of be sad, and I'm going to pull away uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but but she, she brings her pain somewhere. Verse 9 says, On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. She brings her pain to God. She brings her pain to, pain to Yahweh. She goes to the temple and she, she, she asks, she, she brings her heart to God and she asks for what she needs. But she doesn't just ask for what she needs. She admits not having this hurts. Does that make sense? I think for some of us, um, if we're honest, we're disappointed about how our life has turned out in some ways. And actually, our, we didn't get the job we wanted. We are struggling to conceive. Uh, we didn't get the spouse we wanted. We, we're not living in the place we wanted. So we don't have the friends we wanted to have. Whatever it is, it feels so tangibly disappointing that we don't have that thing. And I think for a lot of us, God seems really distant. And I think for a lot of us, it's because we haven't got, brought God that despair, that grief. And I want to say he can handle it. This text teaches us he can handle it. If you're heartbroken and angry, you can tell God I'm heartbroken and angry. You can even say I'm mad at you. He can handle it. He meets us in that. So she brings her pain to God and, and she makes a request. Verse 11, it says, Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me. And give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. Now when she says um, his hair will never be cut, um, and no razor will ever touch her head, um, she's making what's called a, a Nazarite vow. Um, and if you look in the Torah, uh, basically in, in ancient Israel, if you wanted to be a priest, uh, there's a really high standard for being a priest. And a big part of it's just your lineage. Um, are you a Levite? Are you from the tribe of Levi? Okay. Um, it wasn't a thing where you were like a little kid and it was like, hey, man, do you want to be a priest when you grow up? It's like, are you a Levite? You're going to be a priest. Are you not a Levite? You're, you can't be a priest unless you are a Nazarite, which is where you can go, hey, it's not about, hey, do you want to go to Bible college or whatever? It's, it's you're set aside to serve in the temple as a child. I think uh, if you're in your teens, you can set yourself aside. I, I didn't do a deep dive on the Nazarite thing, but, but in her case, it's a baby. And she, it, it's, it's offering your child to the temple uh, to, to basically be raised by the priest to become a priest or a temple attendant. Now, what I want you to catch is, is when she does that, think about what she's been through and why it seems she's been there. She's like... I. I don't have this thing that I need so badly. I want it so badly. And then she goes before the Lord and says, if you give it to me, I will give it back to you. Everything she hoped to attain in having a son, again, security, dignity, worth, just to shut up the other wife, right? Emotional connection, long-term planning, all that stuff. 
Because um, again, uh, if they are presented to the temple, by the way, they give up their inheritance. They give. Uh, they don't. They don't live with their parents. That emotional connection's gone. Um, they're not going to be there long term. Um, they're going to be raised up there. And so um, she's renounced the one thing she thought she needed to be happy. But she gets up and she's not sad anymore. Or at least she's not devastated. Um, we'll see here. In, uh, I'll keep reading in verse 12. It says, while she, while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth, the priest. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Again, Hannah's putting up with the dumbest males ever, right? The empathy gap in, this, in these texts is out of control. Verse 15 no, my lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Have you ever prayed like that? I just want to tell you again, church, it's okay to bring your pain to God and to others. Like, we can believe this lie that, like, to be emotional is to be weak or something. To be emotional is to be made in the image of God, to be human. Hannah's is bringing her anguish and her resentment before the Lord, her pain before the Lord. There's a, there is a time for a praise report, there is a time for a miracle, and there's a time to be heartbroken. God's in all of it. Jesus himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm so sad. I wish I was dead. Again, it's not like not theological to be emotional. It's to be an embodied human in relationship with God and people. Verse 17, Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way, and she ate and no longer looked despondent. Verse 19, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was, Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son she named Samuel, because she said, I requested him from the Lord. And so again, sh she renounces the one thing it seems like she thinks she needs to be happy. And she walks away before she's pregnant. She walks away in a different space. Uh, commentator Heath Thomas points out, uh, something that's really interesting is, is how this happens in Hannah's life. So Heath Thomas points out that the order of what happens in her life is really interesting. And he says, you know, if it was up to us, we would make the order this way. Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant, Hannah gets happy. Right? I'm sad because I don't have this. I got what I want. Now I'm happy. Um, and, and he Thomas says something different appears in this story. He says, instead of the order listed above, we find the order is actually Hannah prays, Hannah is joyful, Hannah gets pregnant. The order of events is not empty, he continues. Hannah found joy and deep faith as she found her deepest needs met in God. Faith-filled Hannah has found a source of joy and security greater than her hope of sons, God himself. People often ask me, um, how do I know if I've made something an idol? Like Pastor Riley goes, man, how do I know? Like um, it could be work or a relationship or a hobby or a dream. Like what are the key indicators 
that like this is an idol. It's not just something I'm passionate about or gifted to do or God designed me to do, but I've actually made it an idol. And one of the, the key indicators I always bring up is can you offer it to God in worship? Like, is, are you open-handed with it? Can he take it out of your hand if he wants to? Can you surrender outcomes or is your identity always on the line? Surrendering outcome like, like I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to trust you with it. Even if I don't get it, I will still worship you. And so what I want to ask this morning is, can we surrender ourselves to God? Do, do we worship God? Do we offer ourselves to him with the deepest parts of ourselves? Both the deepest parts of our heart and the things that we want to hold on most tightly to. Do we offer all of ourselves to him and let him do what he wants to do in our lives? And this is the beginning of living a spirit-led life, is going, I'm, I need to be filled I'm opening myself up to you to be filled. I want to receive from you. And when we do that, there is a freedom and joy that emerges. First um, Samuel chapter 2, uh, we'll start in verse 1. So, so to fast forward, um, Samuel is born. Hannah brings him to the temple. Eli says um, he needs to be, you have to wean him off, uh, bring him back when he's three years old, basically. Um, which in some ways might be more painful. She builds this relationship. And, um, and then in verse 2, she is about to take Samuel, and it says, Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. It's talking about his, uh, the other wife. Um, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. But the Lord is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the arrows are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full, hi are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless give, gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor for the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And verse 11 says, Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest, Eli. And we're going to pick up on Samuel and Eli's story in two weeks' time. But what I want you to catch is, in surrender, she was free to worship. She was free to remember what really mattered and what didn't, and what God had done in her life. How God will make everything right. That we don't have to control outcomes or people or situations. There's like a freedom to her worship. Um, and what I want to ask is, are, are we, are we really, it's, it, it could sound so basic guys. Like it could sound like a camp talk. Like, are you surrendered to Jesus? Come for like, but genuinely, like, 
are your hands open before him? There's so much complexity we add to our life and pain we add to our life and chronic anxiety we add to our life when we need to grip stuff with everything we have. And based on your story and what's happened to you in the past and your understanding of who God is and all your faith formation, all that stuff, like it can make sense why you want to hold it. But I want to say he is trustworthy to hold your hands open before. He is trustworthy to open your heart before. And as we do that, as we remember that Jesus is for us, he didn't come and live and die and rise again to oppose us. He is for us. He is with us. He wants to meet with us and heal us and come alongside us and comfort us when we're brokenhearted, provide a future for us. Like, he wants to do all that stuff. And a lot of us, um, we either, we, we hold it like this, or we hold it like a little bit looser, but we don't really go to God, we just go to other people. We're like, tell me why I should do this for God. And, and, and people are like, ah, you should, the Bible, I don't know, did you pray about it? You know, and you're like, ah, you know, or they give really bad answers or quote Bible verses out of context, whatever, instead of going, man, like, let's go before the Lord ourselves and see what he does in us. Um, Grant and I, uh, Grant's in Orlando, Florida today, you guys. He's doing it, doing it big, Orlando, uh, Disney, alligators, uh, preaching at a church there. And, um, and, uh, but last week, him and I went up to a spiritual formation retreat, and um, we're in a spiritual formation program uh, that's designed to um, really, like, help uh, pastors and therapists walk with people better, uh, both integrating a, a spiritual component and a psychological component. And it's led by these two psychologists who were um, discipled by Dallas Willard and another pastor we really look to. And uh, it was a really phenomenal time. But one of my favorite things that we talked about in the five days um, was they talked about praying a daily prayer, really, of surrender, where you go, if my life is about Jesus and becoming like him, how would that frame my day? And so I wanted to share this prayer with you, and it's called the Apprentice Prayer. And my heart is that, that over the course of the next year, we become a people who could pray this with integrity, like we want it to be true. And I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus, I love you. Father, I adore you. Holy Spirit, I rely on you. Lord Jesus, I seek to live as your apprentice in all that I do today. My life is your school for teaching me. I relinquish my agenda for this day, and I submit myself to you and your kingdom purposes. In all things today, I pray your will, your way, your time. Your will, your way, your time. I know a lot of us are like, your will, tomorrow, right? Like you've got a calling on my life, tomorrow. No, no, your will, your way, right? Christian, even Christian pastors, all kinds of people get in trouble when they try to do his will their own way. Where the ends justify the means. We do that in our own lives. God's called me to be married, so I'll marry whoever I want, okay? Or God's called me to have a certain size ministry, so I'll do whatever it takes. Or God's called me to make a certain amount of money, and, and, and I need to do it tomorrow, so I need to take it into my hands and overwork and neglect my family and my soul. No, no, it's his way. His will, his way, and then his time. For some of us, it's, it's not the what, it's the when. This was the case with Hannah. By the way, you don't always get the thing we think we need. God can do whatever he wants to. He'll give you what you do need, but it may not always be what you want. But, but again, it's, it's your time. I'm talking to him. This prayer gets a little longer, but it's good. Dear Father, I ask you to ordain the events of this day and use them to make me more like Jesus. 
You guys are praying like that in traffic? It makes sense of the traffic. Like, I see what you're doing here. Sovereign Lord, that you won't let anything happen to my family or me today except that it passes through your loving hands. So no matter what problems, hardships, or injustices I face today, help me to not worry or get frustrated, but instead to relax in the yoke of your providence. Yes, today I will rejoice because I am in your eternal kingdom. You love me and you are teaching me. My Lord, I I devote my whole self to you. I want to be all and only for you, Jesus. Today I seek to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and all my relationships. Today I depend on you, Holy Spirit, not my own resources. Help me to keep in step with you. Today I, look to, uh, today I look to love others as you love me, dear God, blessing everyone I meet, even those who mistreat me. Today I'm ready to lead people to follow you, Jesus. Amen. Okay? What if that was your outlook every day? You'd be unstoppable. You'd be free. And so I don't know about you. And by the way, I, I've started to pray this prayer. It feels aspirational in some ways, and it is. It's saying, like, Lord, help me become this kind of person. But this is what I want. I'm not there yet, but this is what I want. And so this morning, what I want to just close by asking is, um, have you really surrendered your life to him? Again, it could sound so basic, but, like, are you, are you still doing that? I'm not talking about did you raise your hand at a camp one time. Like, is your life really his? Do you trust him with your life? And if you don't, by the way, like, let's talk about that. Let's pray about that. Let's get into that. Let's try to find him in the midst of it. Not find, I'm not talking about finding, like, giving you a reason. Here's what God's doing. I'm saying, like, find his presence. Find his purpose. If you're struggling to, if you're struggling to surrender something, it could be anything. You could be trusting him with a dream, right? Maybe it's taking a long time. You're getting angry with God. There's a dream. It could be singleness, like for you, maybe you're single and you want to be married. That's not true for everyone who's single and you're, and you're not less than if you're not married. But you go, I'm single and I want to be married. And this feels like it's taking a long time and you're thinking about compromising your standards to get what you want. Maybe for you, it, it is infertility. And you're doubting God's goodness, which from our vantage point is, is so understandable. You're like, God, I want this good thing. Maybe you got married or you had kids and it's really hard. It's hard for you to surrender what it means to to engage and keep loving and keep growing. Maybe it's financial goals. Like, I don't know what it is, but are you really surrendered before him? Is his, is your life his? And so this morning, um, as we close, uh, two things. Um, We're going to take communion here in a second. Um, We can hit the lights. I'll call the band up. Um, We're going to take communion. And communion is a couple things, but one of the things that it's remembering what Jesus did for us. It's remembering that that he, there's a new covenant, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed. But it's also a moment where we remember when Jesus surrendered himself to God in the garden. He surrendered his emotions. He surrendered his will. He surrendered his life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He surrendered it. He wanted to be with us. And communion is when we commune, we, we remember. Other um, traditions within the church, they actually believe that, that you encounter God in a specific way. His, his presence is, 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 is manifest. 
you're actually communing with him. And even if our theology is a little bit different around the Lord's Supper, around communion, this is still a time where we remember that we, we can commune with the living God because of Jesus. And so we're going to take communion to, to remember that. Um, the other thing I want to do, though, is um, we haven't done this in a while, but I really do want to open it up for prayer ministry this morning. Um, uh, we have a couple of, I think we have three gals who um, have said that they're down to pray. I know I'm down to pray as an elder. Um, yeah, if you want prayer, um, we'll be in the sides up, uh, up front. So after communion, uh, there'll be some people uh, on each side. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and they'll be, they'd love to pray for you. Um, but yeah, we would love to. Um, and here's what, I here's what I would love to pray for people about is just, man, are you struggling to surrender something? Okay. Maybe it's one of the things I mentioned. Maybe it isn't. But for you, are you struggling to bring your whole self before God? And by the way, that, sh that should be all of us probably in, in different ways. So if people go up to get prayers, I'm like, oh, man, what, what weirdos? They're struggling with this. This is something that we have to come back to over and over again. Spirit, am I surrendered to you? I'm going to go ahead and pray. Lord, in a room like this, there are a lot of desires. for gifts, for good things. There's also desires for bad things. But God, wherever we're at in our journey, I think for some of us, we, we might be gripping either, we're either gripping something really tight or the dream of something really tight. And for some of us, it's keeping us from hearing the, the voice of your spirit because we're going, I'm only going to listen to you if you give this to me or I'm only going to listen to you if I don't have to give this up. And it keeps us from hearing and so, Lord, would you make us a people who are open to you, like we'd live our lives open before you. And that's scary at times, and at times it can feel risky. But if you're really the God who Jesus revealed to us, then we're in good hands. We are more than safe. We are more than blessed, surrendering ourselves to you. We're not surrendering ourselves to another person. We're not surrendering ourselves to a random idea, but Lord, would we be people who surrender ourselves to you in response to the fact that you surrendered yourself to the Father on our behalf? You surrendered yourself to pain. You surrendered yourself to alienation. You surrendered yourself to abuse and oppression. You surrendered yourself to mistreatment and judgment. so that we might be with you. But for some of us, it just feels like we're with you, but we're afraid to really let you in. We're like, no, no, no. Like you, there's certain parts of us you can't touch. And again, there might be really good reasons for that. You know we're human. You know we're dust. You know why we cling to the idols we cling to, but Lord, would you help us set them down? Would you help us hold the good things before you? and set the bad things down that we look to besides you to give us what we really need. So as we take communion, would you meet with us in a fresh way? As we worship, would, would you help us to sing like Hannah, to go, this is who you are. My circumstances are real and they matter and they hurt, but they don't change who you are. And you're with me and you love me and you f you're for me and you're not going anywhere. And we're going to figure this thing out together. 
And it's all because of what Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen.